And it's Jameson Fink with another episode of Wine Without Worry. Wine Without Worry is brought to you by Wente Vineyards, America's oldest family-owned winery and California's first family of Chardonnay. Visit them online at wentevineyards.com. And today we're going to talk about Spanish wine. Um, it's a topic that, uh, well, I'm a fan, but I haven't really dedicated a show to it yet. Uh, and I think it's one of the uh, countries in Europe that every wine lover should know and know more uh, intimately as far as reds, whites, rosés, fortified, and uh, uh, a lot more. So I'm really excited to have as a guest on the show Chris Tangi. He is the Wine and Service Director at Aragona Seattle. He's also a Master Sommelier and one of the 2014 Food and Wine Sommeliers of the Year. Chris, welcome to the show. Uh, great to have you here. And my first question is, uh, I know Aragona Seattle is at First and Union, but where is Aragona in Spain? So Aragona actually is named after the crown of Aragon. Um, which was a 15th uh, century kingdom that spanned eastern Spain, uh, southern half of Italy, parts of southern France, um, the islands of Sicily, uh, Corsica, Sardinia, and even over into Greece. Um, so the idea of Aragona is kind of based off this crown of Aragon. So the cuisine is largely Mediterranean focused with a lot of seafood. Um, but we're not uh, kind of we're not beholden to just the Spain necessarily. Um, there's a lot of Mediterranean influence outside of that. Again, from southern Italy, southern France, etc. Um, and we also follow that kind of loose uh, theme with the wine list as well. So uh, I think most people with Spanish wine, probably their introduction is going to be Rioja. I think would be the classic thing. Do you find mm -hmm. um, people here are like, what do they know about Spanish wine, and what kind of questions do they have? Yeah, what really shocked me uh, was that they were wanting to learn a lot about Spanish wine when they come here. Um, and I found this at RN74 when I worked there as well, uh, that people wanted to learn about Burgundy, which is cool, because every other restaurant I've worked at in Seattle, we sell mostly Pacific Northwest wine, and I love Pacific Northwest wine. Mm -hmm. um, and we have it here on the list, uh, a, a great representation focusing on more Spanish varieties, Syrah, Tempranillo, Grenache, etc. Um, but when you market yourself as a specific restaurant with a specific cuisine, people really want to experience that when they come here. So, yeah, people definitely know, I would say, Rioja um, mainly. Uh, they do know Rias Bajas from time to time. Um, and sometimes they know Cava, sometimes they know Rivera del Duero. Um, but they're always wanting to kind of taste something new when they come here. Right. So uh, Rias Bajas would be uh, best known for uh, Albarino. Correct. Uh, talk about uh, that as a wine and, um, you know, some of maybe some of the dishes here that you like to pair it with. Yeah, sure. So um, Rias Bajas is in uh, an area of Spain called Green Spain or Galicia, which is in northwestern Spain. Um, and this appellation is right on the Atlantic. Uh, it literally translates to low estuaries. Um, it's just a very uh, kind of maritime climate, um, and the grape is Albarino for the most part. Um, and it's a grape variety that exhibits uh, a lot of melon fruits, citrus, and tree fruits. So green to yellow apple, um, pear, uh, 
and uh, it, it's typically high acid uh, grape variety. It has a lot of apple blossom, uh, distinct kind of gravelly, stony minerality. Uh, it can be like very Sauvignon Blanc-like on the lean side, or on the riper side, it can be uh, almost into the Viognier camp with a little more floral capacity. Um, but here at the restaurant, uh, we use it as uh, a great pairing with seafood um, because of that minerality and high acid. Right now, we have a delicious strawberry uh, gazpacho with sardines on the menu. Oh, that's and great. And we have a riper style from Edo Sepadrinan that just is it's a perfect pairing. It's really, really wonderful. That's really great. When I was in um, Barcelona, I went to a cooking school, and one of the things we made was a sardine and strawberry salad. And uh-huh. I thought I was, uh, I mean, you're, I was kind of skeptical about it. Sounds it sounds gross, Yeah, right? it does. It does, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Uh, it's fantastic yeah somehow it works um, and I love sure. and I love sardines and anchovies too those were things I I mean I don't know how many kids love that or American kids but uh, they're some of my favorite things to eat now yeah definitely I think uh, you know it's a staple for Spanish cuisine regardless of where you go um, I've had them all over Spain from from Barcelona to I was just in Aragon last week Madrid um, down in the Sherry region and uh, uh, in, in Cadiz and Jerez um there they usually fry them, but there's yeah they're big they're big there. Well, talk about uh, visiting the Sherry region, Jerez, and uh, what it's like to visit there mm-hmm. uh, because that's something I'm really curious about. Yeah, so it's uh, it's in the south west corner, whereas in Galicia was in the uh, the northwest um, kind of. We're covering a lot of ground. Really, we quickly. are. We're yeah, yeah leaps and bounds. <laughs> um, so again, uh, on the Atlantic, but but definitely more um, more of a hot climate because um, we're closer to the equator here. And um, it's a really neat region, a really old region. There's a lot of Moorish influence. Um, you're not that far from Africa. Um, it's quite hot, so the wines that are grown there um, are generally known as sherry, so uh, mainly from a grape called Palomino. Uh, there's also a little bit of muscatel or muscat grown there, um, in addition to Peter Jimenez, which is used for sweet wines, as is muscatel in this region. Um, but the main star of the show is Palomino, and it's aged uh, in a very unique um, process uh, called the Solera process. And there's two main styles, Finos and Olorosos. Uh, Finos are aged under what's called floor, um, which is just a yeast that grows on top of the wine, protecting it from oxidation and blends a lot of character to the wine. And then Oloroso is just aged in barrel without the floor, basically. So they're a little bit richer, nuttier. And I think with uh, what's interesting about sherry too is when people talk about you know terroir or the concept of a a place having an influence on uh, what ends up in your glass and making it distinct. I mean, there's kind of like with the way sherries are uh, aged in like like a really kind of like I mean it's like a really hot, humid uh, environment that that lends itself to the character of the finished wine. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a lot of you hear a lot of uh, people say the wine is made in the vineyard. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. And that's. Uh, not as true with sherry as it is in other regions um, because really the character of the wine is developed through the aging process. Um, while you do get some, obviously, characteristics from the vineyard, it's it's really the, the terroir that you talk about when you talk about sherry is actually in the barrel. Mm-hmm. And what's really cool is that every barrel is kind of its own mini terroir. Right. Um, and barrels, even though it's in the same, what's called solera, um, which is the fra- fractional blending system because it's a multi-vintage wine, so they put a new vintage at the top and they draw some from the bottom. And you can think of it as kind of an upside-down pyramid, right. uh, rows of barrels. So new vintage at the top, bottle wine at the bottom, so it all kind of mixes in together throughout the years. 
And um, <clears throat> you can taste one barrel in one row or criadera of the solera, uh, say at the whatever far left end, and then you taste one in the middle and they'll taste different. Not extremely different, but definitely noticeably different, which is very cool. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, that wine is made in the aging process and they can age for years and years and years. And I know sherry is something you're a big proponent of. You have a lot mm -hmm. of offerings on the menu, but a lot of people, I know sherry's having its moments, especially, I mean, in New York, it seems like all the cool kids are drinking sherry yeah. and with, uh, with gusto. Um, what's the uh, sherry scene like here? And are people uh, you know, re who aren't familiar with it resistant to sherry? Do they have stereotypes about it? Like, what is, how, do, how does your job work as far as being a proponent of sherry? Yeah, we definitely wanted to champion sherry. Um, I, I think it's one of the most versatile wines out there, maybe even more so than champagne, um, if you look at the entire range of styles. Um, and especially with our food, it's, it's very appropriate. Um, in Seattle, it's still, we're still a little bit behind as far as yeah. being like, yeah, Sherry, but uh, definitely New York, San Francisco, Chicago even, uh, a little bit less so, but um, those cities are, are really embracing it. Um, also, it's making a lot of headway in uh, the use of cocktails. Oh, yeah. Um, and we have uh, a number of uh, Sherry cocktails on the list here, which is is appropriate, but also I, what I like about it is it tends to produce a lower alcohol, a lower proof yeah. uh, cocktail, which is nice, especially for the summer. Um, our goal when we opened here was to uh, have an awesome sherry list, mm -hmm. um, but also sell uh, like a 750 milliliter full-size bottle of sherry to a guest to enjoy with their dinner as their main wine, rather than have it be an aperitif or a dessert wine or whatever. Um, and uh, within six months, that was the goal. And, and by the first two weeks, we had done that about 30 times over, which is really wow, cool. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, so again, it speaks to people wanting to learn when they come here. But they do, they're not always, uh, they're kind of surprised when I, I suggest sherry because a lot of people think of their grandmother's cream sure. sherry. Yeah. And it's, you know, the thing of this cloyingly sweet, sticky kind of concoction that sits on the shelf forever in a right. day. and. You know, grandma has a little little dram here and there, yeah. um, but in reality, the majority of um, sherry is actually dry, um, especially the the sherry that you know goes with with the cuisines of of Spain and what Spaniards drink is mainly dry sherry. And to all the grandmothers out there, we love you very much. Absolutely, There's nothing <laughs> wrong with grandma sipping some cream sherry. However, uh, no, no, no. we'll get we'll get we'll get a little fino and some uh, Marcona almonds uh, in her in her hands. Um, yeah. Speaking of dry sherries, what are uh, what are some things here at uh, Aragona that uh, like some dishes that are really great with a dry sherry? Mm -hmm. um, we ate, well, we have anchovies. Uh, mm -hmm. Speaking of on on the menu on our bar menu and. Uh, that goes great. Actually, I prefer it with a dry Oloroso, mm -hmm. uh, just because the anchovies are so powerful mm -hmm. that it doesn't really stand up to uh, fino or manzanilla of any kind. Um, we also have uh, a great, it's called Embutidos. It's just kind of a collection of um, house-made charcuterie, as well as some charcuterie brought over from Spain. goes great with uh, Amontillado, which is uh, an aged uh, fino, basically. Um, and then with manzanilla and things like that, um, from time to time, we have a dish called adobo, uh, which is usually used black cod, which is a very rich, silky uh, fish that we um, 
soak in vinegar and then we uh, just give a very light almost tempura like coating and and fry it very quickly and that goes well with the kind of salty really fresh uh, character of of manzanilla yeah you know it's interesting you mentioned earlier talking about the versatility of sherry as as being maybe as or possibly more versatile than champagne when i think Mm -hmm. about all these um, foods you're describing, they all seem very champagne friendly, like mm-hmm. fried food, um, oily Absolutely. food, having like, because I think that dry sherry has, whereas um, it has that, that saltiness and acidity to cut through all that rich food, just kind of mm-hmm. like champagne has. I mean, it has salinity, but it's more, I guess, the acidity and the, and the, and the property of the, of the bubbles, too. So mm-hmm. it kind of seems mm-hmm. like if you're thinking, like, I'd like, oh, and, and champagne, of course, is a wonderful aperitif, too. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you could, I, you know, if you were experimenting with sherry, you could kind of think about, like, dishes that go well with champagne and kind of try uh, try it with a dry sherry instead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or you could also translate that to think of a dish that goes with a red wine uh-huh. and, like, a lighter style of red wine, mm-hmm. uh, Pinot Noir or Garnacha or something like that, mm-hmm. and you could translate that to an Oloroso of some sort. And you could literally, I could do a whole tasting menu with with sherry pairings. Right. Um, with not just our, I mean, it's very appropriate for our cuisine, but you could do it with a lot of cuisines, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, what's the difference between uh, manzanita and, and fino sherry? So manzanita is uh, a type of fino sherry, so it's biologically or floor aged, mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's aged just in one town which is called San Lucar de Barrameda, which is right on the sea. And you get a lot of uh, oceanic influence in the bodega or, or the, the, uh, the winery. Um, and some people say it lends a kind of saltiness to the wines, um, which I think it does, uh, because you get these, these ocean breezes, which are called Poniente, which I love that name. We actually named a cocktail after that. Oh, nice. Um, and uh, yeah, it just uh, it helps to cool the bodega and brings this kind of salty air influence to the wines. Whereas uh, fino can be aged anywhere okay. in uh, the major towns. I think I just called it manzanita. You did. That's I okay. was thinking of Oregon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, 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 and it's on the coast. There we go. Yeah, the yeah, incredible yeah. cool climate uh, sherries of Manzanita, Oregon. Uh, put that, that put could, that on your radar. That could be the next hot thing. <laughs> um, that's great to hear about your enthusiasm about sherry too, but. Uh, couple more things about Spanish wine. One, probably when people ask me for, like, sort of like I'm in a wine shop, I need to go to, like, an inexpensive wine that's always high quality. It seems like for me, um, Monastrell or Muvedra from, uh, Monastrell from Spain seems to be, like, incredible value. And mm-hmm. um, what's, what's, what are your thoughts on that grape and what's, what it's, what you get from in Spain? I think Spanish wines in general are incredible value. Mm-hmm. Um, when you know where to look, uh, and Monastrell in particular can be. Um, however, I feel like there's more variation with Monastrell mm-hmm. than uh, other varieties such as uh, Tempranillo and Garnacha. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it does have a lot of potential uh, to create really delicious wines that are fuller bodied, more black fruited, um, so blackberries, black plum, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and Umia is a pretty famous region for that, um, but it's grown all over the place. Um, I tend to like the the earlier picked or less ripe examples that see less oak. But if you know, I think it's a great uh, kind of intro to Spanish, richer Spanish wine. Mm-hmm. If you find some oaked examples as well, um, but the Spaniards are still lo- learning to kind of tone down the oak in these in these regions that are trying to make an impact on the world wine stage. And so, um, you know, every, you see this in every region where they. They, when they're starting to uh, export their wines, they throw a lot of oak on it because they think that's what everyone wants. And that used to be the case, for sure. But now I, I feel like that's changing, and, 
and uh, consumers are becoming more and more savvy and they're looking for less ripe, lower oats, uh, lesser oats, um, fresher, more varietal examples. Fantastic. Yeah. And this is Wine Without Worry with Jameson Fink. My guest is Chris Tangi. He's the Wine and Service Director at Aragona Seattle. Uh, you can uh, find out more about Aragona at aragonaseattle.com. So, Chris, I'm a huge sparkling wine fan. I love kava. Mm-hmm. I think most people, when they think of kava, think of um, just really, you know, like inexpensive, well-made, tasty, refreshing, uh, sparkling wine. But there's a lot of uh, stuff that's really much more high quality, much more... Um, I guess, I guess I'm trying to think of something to say besides sophisticated, but much more like, uh, I guess, you know, artisanal, crafted kava. Can you talk about, like, mm-hmm. the world of kava beyond just sort of like your uh, mimosa-type kava wines? Sure. Um, yeah, kava to me is still, it's still um, finding its way to a large degree. I think there are some great examples, um, but I think that uh, it can be... It's not always as sophisticated as I want it to be, honestly. Right. And I, I've 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 found some great examples, but I've also tried to love it as a as an entity, and I just I can't quite get there yet, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that they're getting there. Like, there's some great uh, for me. Macabeo makes the, some of the best cavas, mm-hmm. uh, especially from old vines that are spending a bit more time on the lees, um, kind of more serious style, cham- you know, champagne esque style. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes it can be almost kind of like rubber glove e to me, and I I don't I'm trying to identify if that's a yeast thing or if that's a, a grape variety thing. Some people told me it's pariata, but overall I think I mean the quality is, is high. The, the yeah. method is great, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're just still finding out the best spots uh, to plant the best varieties, and it'll be interesting to see as Chardonnay um, takes more of a foothold. Uh, to see what kind of, kinds of kava it produces. But for me, Macabeo is really the champion right now, and it's, it, it can produce some phenomenal wines. Mm-hmm. I talk about wine production. I, I keep reading about more and more um, sommeliers and uh, master sommeliers, mm-hmm. or just sommeliers in, in, in general, making uh, wine. Is that mm-hmm. something that you've thought about doing if you had you know the time and the inclination? Is that something that, that piques your interest? Yeah, definitely. It's high on the list right now. Uh-huh. Um, I actually tried to last year, but it was just too busy with opening Aragona yeah. and... Um, um, and the year before that, I was studying for the MS exam. And, yeah. Um, so I, ho- I hope to do some this year. I want to do some uh, stages with wineries this year. So I'm trying to set that up right mm-hmm. now. And, and I think that is actually the direction I want to go uh, in uh, with my career. Mm-hmm. Um, that and education, mm-hmm. kind of doing them both simultaneously. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know, as a sommelier, you, you study wine and for a long time and, and study producers and really the the really amazing part for me is meeting those producers and seeing the faces that create this wonderful thing that you love and that you you bring to guests and that you uh, use as a tool in food and wine pairing just like to see all the work that goes into it is is really incredible not to mention all the history and all the other things there are to learn about a wine so I want to be part of that at some point and um, you know it's just it's finding the time and and all yeah. that good stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, I love, I think there's a lot of, what I want to make basically is is Syrah, uh, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Grenache. Are you now, are you thinking stages in the Pacific Northwest or in Europe or somewhere else in the world? Or? I've, I've done some mini stages here mm-hmm. in the Pacific Northwest, so I'd like to go somewhere else mm-hmm. to do some stages. I'd love to, of course, go to Burgundy, which is yeah. every Psalm's, sure. you know, go-to place and it's so predictable, but there's a reason for yeah, it. I mean, exactly. the lines are incredible. So I'd like to do uh, one there. I'd like to do something in California. 
Um, I think there's a, a big change going on that's really exciting in California that's yeah, changing the identity of, of what people think of California wine. Um, and I'll, I'll probably do another one here, um, just a, another small one because it's very convenient. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm in the midst of kind of planning those steps, and, and we'll see where it takes me. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So um, back to Spanish wine, what are some regions that you think people should be looking out for or keeping their eye on that are, are doing exciting things, and what are they, what are they doing that, that gets you excited? Yeah, there's a, there's a number. Uh, so I may go on a little bit long here. But, That's okay. Uh, no, please do. Uh, Take notes, folks. <laughs> in Galicia, uh, in, in the northwest where we talked about uh, Reyes Bajas, a little bit inland, there's a, a little appellation called uh, Val de Oras, and, uh, as well as Bierzo. And they're very close together, um, and they're producing really exciting wines uh, from a white variety called Godeo, mm-hmm. uh, which for me has a lot of similarities to Chardonnay, but maybe a little bit more fatness, uh, richness in the mid-palate. Um, and it takes the oak well just a little bit, extremely minerally, high acid. It's, and the best example is it reminds me of, of Chablis, Brown Cru Chablis. Oh. Um, yeah, it's really stunning. Uh, and then the red variety from those regions is uh, indigenous called Mencia, uh, or Menthea, depending on if you want to use the uh, lisp accent, um, which is stylistically kind of a cross between Syrah and Pinot Noir. Um, very aromatic, very perfumed, very elegant. Um, and depending on, on the age of the vines and the style of winemaking, you know, it can be tart red-fruited to almost black-fruited. And it's just, it's very minerally, um, lots of violets. It's just awesome. Um, after that, I think that uh, Madrid is producing some really interesting garnacha and some smaller areas outside the Madrid DO. So there's always been vineyards planted there to produce everyday drinking wine for the people of Madrid, um, and it was generally not super high quality, just kind of everyday drinking stuff. And uh, now the vines are quite old, and the, these young winemakers are coming in and changing up the, the viticulture a little bit and lowering the yields and um, producing some really, really awesome garnacha that's almost like like burgundy. I mean, it's just it's so elegant and pretty and uh, uh, spicy, and it's great. And then. Uh, where else? Um, also, there's a bunch of small appellations in Catalonia and Aragon producing, again, Garnacha for the most part. Um, and some Syrahs doing really well there, like Somontano produces some great Garnacha. Um, and also in Ribera del Duero, uh, which is quite well known in the east of Ribera del Duero. It's a little bit higher elevation and it's all sand, so we have really old vines on original rootstock that are producing more. Um, Again, elegant examples of Tempranillo uh, that are less black fruit and more red fruit, which is kind of my style. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, uh, I mean, we mentioned Washington briefly. I know you have some Washington wines on your mm-hmm. list. Um, I imagine since we're, I mean, we're right downtown, we're right next to the Four Seasons, right, right by the, the Ferris wheel, that you get a lot of uh, tourists coming by. Mm-hmm. And um, what, what are their, like, uh, thoughts on Washington wine? What's their familiarity with it? How much uh, kind of, you know, hand-holding or introducing or teaching do you have to do when it comes to that? You know, that's a great question. Um, I can't really answer it um, with much specificity Mm -hmm. because we're just entering our first tourist um, season. So, um, but for the the few that we've had, um, I think there's definitely a large awareness of Washington wine and... um, People, people are into it. People want to learn about it, just like 
you know, our, our local people want to learn about Spanish wine. Um, and I think that what we feature from Washington speaks to Washington's strengths of growing Syrah um, and, and Grenache mainly. Um, Tempranillo is starting to get a foothold here. Um, but for me, the next, like right now, I think the big thing is Syrah in Washington. Uh-huh. But the next big thing I think is going to be Grenache. Okay. And a lot of producers I've talked to have, um, have been excited about that. And there's more and more plantings of it. And um, there's some really really great stuff going on. What are some of the Syrahs and Grenaches that, you, uh, that you've had or have on your list that, mm-hmm. that you would point people to as that representative of that? Yeah, I love the Syrahs from uh, Morgan Lee at Two Vintners. Mm-hmm. Uh, he makes a couple different bottlings of Syrah, and he's really into experimentation and is doing some things that are unorthodox for Washington winemaking, um, using larger barrels, whole cluster fermentation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're really meaty, gamey, spicy, interesting wines. Um, Cayuse is doing some lovely Grenache, the uh, God Only Knows Grenache, and he's planting more of it and experimenting with different trellising and different sites and whatnot. Um, and to me, when you stick your nose in the glass, there's just no question that it's Grenache. Um, Gramercy Cellars does a great job with Syrah and Tempranillo as well. They have uh, the Inigo Montoya for all the Princess Bride fans. Um, that's trying to emulate uh, Rioja, so aged in American oak and all that good stuff. And I, I think it's a it's a great example. And um, finally, I know you're. Uh, I was doing some you know reading, snooping about you, and mm-hmm. um, I was really interested in your your cooking background. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're an avid cook. Um, you've you've worked in kitchens. Um, how does that um, well, what, how, how did you get flipped to the wine side, and, and does that cooking uh, background, uh, how does that work in your in your job today? Yeah, the cooking background is immensely valuable as far as pairing, um, because I understand more than just the flavor of the dish. I think uh, cooking technique, the how high or low of impact it is. So when I say high impact, I mean, is it seared on a really hot pan, or is it grilled? Or is it low impact, like poaching or something like that? And that that really plays a big role into what wines are appropriate um, beyond just straight up flavor. Um, so, you know, like salmon, for instance, good example. Salmon, when you grill it or sear it with the skin on, is has a much different flavor from when you take the skin off and you poach it very gently. So that dish calls for extremely different wines. Um, you can't just say Pinot Noir and salmon. I mean, yeah, that can be a great pairing, yeah, right? Yeah, but for the poaching, if you're poaching it in like a delicate, uh, you know, stock or something, yeah, yeah you're going to want to stay away from red wine. Exactly. Totally inappropriate, right? So um, that's been, it's been really valuable uh, for me. Um, and basically how I got into wine was I, uh, I went to culinary school pretty much right out of high school uh, to the CIA, or Culinary Institute of America and, in New York. And uh, part of that program is a, is a wine class. And that's when kind of opened my eyes to the potential of, of food and wine pairing and how they can elevate one another. Um, it kind of blew my 18-year-old mind. Uh-huh. Um, and I actually tried to take my first level sommelier certification with a court of master sommeliers then, but they went, I, I was unable because I was not 21. So yeah. uh, after I graduated and I turned 21, I flew to uh, Napa and did my first level um, and, and really loved it, but I was still dedicated to cooking. And then as a few more years went by, I um, was kind of trying to prep myself to own a restaurant someday. So I started working in front of the house as well uh, to learn that whole side of it. And um, the more I worked in front of the house, the more I realized that was 
that was more appropriate for the lifestyle I wanted to live. And um, after working several positions, I decided that wine was really the best job in the entire restaurant because you bring people alcohol <laughs> and, <laughs> and everyone loves you. And yeah. it's, it's also, it's a world that's ever changing. Mm-hmm. Every year there's new vintage information, there's new wineries, new appellations. It's just, it's fascinating. It's, you know, you can say your whole life and never get bored. And so as I uh, started to work towards being a sommelier, I took lots of classes. And one of the classes I took was taught by a master sommelier, Shane Bjornholm. And um, he was just so knowledgeable and confident and, and just awesome. And I just, I knew that's what I wanted to be, a master sommelier. So I started along that path in 2006 and then I passed the MS exam in 2013. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. That's quite a But And you're still, but uh, a lot of people would think, well, maybe not a lot of people, you know, you've achieved your master sommelier and then you can like, ah, kick back, put your feet up take a deep breath and just chill but you're still you still have that drive to learn and all you're always learning you have i mean for me if you're going to be a master of something yeah. you have to continually study um there's no kicking back for me um now i get to like spend a lot of time on one subject and be really nerdy about one subject uh-huh. and then move on to the next you know uh which is cool to be able to really dive in and and have the time to do that um so you know, I, for me, it'll never, it'll, it'll never be the end of studying. But um, yeah, now I want to learn about winemaking, and there's always something new to learn. You know, uh, that's that's why I chose this profession. Yeah, so. so it's what keeps things interesting and fascinating yeah. for sure. Absolutely. Well, Chris, thanks for being on the show. Uh, I encourage everyone to stop by Aragona at uh, First and Union in Seattle, and you can find out more about Aragona at aragonaseattle.com. And uh, come by and ask Chris about uh, Sherry or Garnacha or Rioja or really uh, anything. He's a great guy, super knowledgeable, and a great teacher, I think, that you've heard over the last uh, half hour of the show. So, Chris, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me.